Hi everyone, this is Dan and welcome to the Rapid Boards Review Podcast. In this episode, we go over high-yield triads that you should know for your Step 1 examination. We cover the triad itself and all peripheral points that are associated with the respective pathology. For the Step 1 examination, knowing these triads can be really clutch, because when you are parsing through all the different clues that a question stem may throw at you, it's great to have three of those clues stand out to you and help you decide what the answer may be. That being said, understanding why is often just as important as memorizing what to find. So I try my best to also quiz you on your understanding of why the triads present the way they do. Now this is part one, there will be a part two as well with more high yield triads to know. So thank you so much for listening to this episode and all the previous episodes, and I really hope you find this content useful. All right, high yield triad number one. What is the triad for Wernicke encephalopathy? So that would be confusion, ophthalmoplegia, and ataxia. And what is the Wernicke encephalopathy due to functionally? Good, so it's due to a vitamin B1 deficiency. And what is another name for vitamin B1? So vitamin B1 is also called thiamine. And what is the classic patient population that you see Wernicke encephalopathy in? So classically, you see it in malnourished patients, but most commonly you'll see it in uh, long-term alcoholics. And really, that's just because uh, if you're consuming tons of alcohol, you're probably not consuming tons of nutrients, and one of those nutrients would be thiamine or vitamin B1. And there's a really important treatment consideration that comes up um, that could actually help you prevent Wernicke encephalopathy. Do you know what that is before I give any more hints? So essentially, you have to give thiamine or vitamin B1 before you give dextrose to a malnourished patient to decrease the risk of precipitating the Wernicke encephalopathy. So the idea here is you have a patient that comes to the emergency room, um, they're a long-time chronic alcohol abuser, and they're completely malnourished, and what you'd want to do is kind of replete them uh, with some dextrose. Um, But the problem here is that if you give them a bunch of dextrose, all their cells are going to go through all these reactions, and presumably uh, they're going to be using up vitamin B1 during these reactions. And because they're vitamin B1 deficient already, this will just drop their vitamin B1 levels even lower, and it'll precipitate Wernicke encephalopathy. So in order to mitigate that, you have to give thiamine before you give the dextrose to replete those vitamin B1 stores. Now, Wernicke encephalopathy can also progress to another syndrome. What is the name of that syndrome? Good, so that would be Korsakoff syndrome. And Korsakoff syndrome actually has its own triad that's high yield to know. What is the triad for Korsakoff syndrome? So that would be confabulation, personality change, and memory loss. And importantly, is that memory loss permanent or non-permanent? Good, that would be permanent memory loss. So the long and short of it is we have Wernicke encephalopathy, the triad of confusion, ophthalmoplegia, and ataxia due to vitamin B1 deficiency. This can progress to Korsakoff syndrome, which is confabulation, personality change, and permanent memory loss. And uh, 
So there's a kind of a syndrome called the Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, which is kind of a combination of both of these things. They exist along a spectrum. And there's two really important uh, findings in the brain um, that you'll see. You'll see damage to two structures. Do you know what those two structures are? So you'll see damage to the dorsal nuclei of the thalamus and also the mammillary body. So those are really um, high yield structures to know. They're kind of like buzzwords. So if you hear damage to the dorsal nucleus of the thalamus or damage to the mammillary bodies, think about Wernicke encephalopathy. All right, so that sums up that one. The next triad is Fabry disease. What is the triad associated with Fabry disease? So that would be episodic purple neuropathy, angiokeratomas, and hypohidrosis, which is essentially decreased sweat. And the important thing to remember is that these are the early findings in Fabry disease. What are the late findings? And there's two really important late findings in this disease. So that would be progressive renal failure and cardiovascular disease. And what does Fabry disease do to? So it's due to deficiency in the enzyme called alpha-galactosidase A. And what is the inheritance of this disease? Good, it's X-linked recessive. So for the triad, remember the episodic peripheral neuropathy, and this can kind of show up as tingling in the toes or the fingers, angiokeratomas, and I would definitely look up a picture of these because it could show up as an attachment in the question stem, and decreased sweat. Okay, the next triad, ataxia telangiectasia. What is the triad for ataxia telangiectasia? So that would be cerebellar defects, which presents as ataxia, spider angiomas, also known as the telangiectasias, and IgA deficiency. So look at this. If you could just remember the name, ataxia telangiectasia, you can, kind of, uh, you can kind of assume all the different things in the triad. So ataxia comes from the cerebellar defects, Telangiectasia is also known as spider angiomas, and IgA deficiency. And you could think of this as the three A's, ataxia, angiomas, IgA deficiency. And this is due to a defect in the gene. What gene is it due to a defect in? So it's due to a defect in the ATM gene. And what does the ATM gene normally do? So the ATM gene normally detects DNA damage. So if you have a defect in the ATM gene, you cannot detect DNA damage. And this leads to failure to halt the progression of the cell cycle, and then mutations accumulate, and then you get the defects that you find in the triad. Now, what is the inheritance of ataxia telangiectasia? Good, so that would be autosomal recessive, and there's actually very key immunoglobulin findings. What are those? So that would be low IgA, low IgG, and low IgE. And if you were to do a brain MRI of someone with ataxia telangiectasia, what would you classically find? So you'd see cerebellar atrophy. And this kind of makes sense because the first thing in the triad was ataxia, which is due to a cerebellar defect. So on MRI, you might find cerebellar atrophy. And these patients with ataxia telangiectasia have increased risk for two key pathologies. Do you know what those are?
So that would be lymphoma and leukemia. And you can remember these because remember, ataxia telangiectasia is due to a defect in the ATM gene, which makes you not able to detect DNA damage. And so you can't halt the cell cycle. And essentially, this is the crux of what cancer is. It's a failure of the cell cycle to halt. It leads to proliferation of cells that shouldn't be proliferating. Um, okay, so that's ataxia telangiectasia. Let's move on now to hemolytic uremic syndrome. What is the high-yield triad for hemolytic uremic syndrome? So the triad here is anemia, thrombocytopenia, and an AKI, or acute kidney injury. And, you know, hemolytic uremic syndrome is most likely due to an infectious cause. What bug is it most likely due to? So it's most commonly due to enterohemorrhagic E. coli, also known as EHEC, or E-H-E-C. And what is the most common serotype of EHEC that causes the hemolytic uremic syndrome? Good, so that would be E. coli O157H7. E. coli O157H7. And hemolytic uremic syndrome is due to a toxin. What is the name of that toxin? So that toxin is Shiga-like toxin, um, and this is the toxin that causes hemolytic uremic syndrome. And for the purposes of step one studying, I would be able to differentiate between Shiga-like toxin and Shiga toxin, which you find in Shigella. And uh, how is hemolytic uremic syndrome uh, typically transmitted? So it's typically transmitted through undercooked meat, classically hamburgers, but also raw leafy vegetables. And if you can remember the H in O157H7, um, this can allow you to remember hamburgers because that also starts with an H. It could also allow you to remember E-HEC because that's enterohemorrhagic E. coli. And it could also allow you to remember the H in hemolytic uremic syndrome. So if you can kind of piece together all these H's, uh, H's rather when you're studying, it can maybe help you remember all the different things that are associated with uh, the O157H7 serotype. Okay, the next triad, congenital toxoplasmosis. What is the triad in congenital toxoplasmosis? So that would be chorioretinitis, hydrocephalus, and intracranial calcifications. And, you know, for the purposes of step one, I would look up a picture of chorioretinitis because I have seen question stems where they have an attachment of an image of the eye with chorioretinitis. Now, there's another congenital infection that presents with the chorioretinitis. What is that infection? Good, so that would be cytomegalovirus. Now, cytomegalovirus also presents with calcifications in the brain, but how can you differentiate these calcifications from those that occur in congenital toxoplasmosis? So cytomegalovirus presents with periventricular calcifications, whereas congenital toxoplasmosis presents with diffuse intracranial calcifications. And this is a high-yield dis uh, distinction that does show up on tests. Now, there's commonly a test question that's like, pregnant women should avoid something um, to prevent their child from getting congenital toxoplasmosis. What is that thing that they should uh, avoid doing? So they should avoid uh, interacting with cat litter. That'd be like cat feces. Now, why is that? 
So that's because one of the ways that toxoplasmosis is spread is through oocysts in the cat feces. Now they also spread through cysts in meat as well. Now what is the treatment for toxoplasmosis? That will be sulfadiazine and pyrimethamine. So sulfadiazine and pyrimethamine. So for congenital toxoplasmosis, remember the triad of chorioretinitis, hydrocephalus, and intracranial calcifications. And that sums up the high-yield triads part one episode. All right, so that sums up part one of our high-yield triads episode. Um, we're going to have a second part as well, so be on the lookout for that. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, I really hope you found this content useful.